1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Lily Gorin, and today I'm hosting Dan Kapust, author of Flattery and the History of Political Thought, That Glib and Oily Art, recently published by Cambridge University Press. The cover of Dan's book should be enough to drive interested listeners to get a hold of it, since the image is quite entertaining and rather apt, given the content of the book. This book is a fascinating exploration of political thought through the complex lens of the question or concept of flattery. Dan Caput's work is rich with examples and analysis of how to think about the concept of flattery, especially considered within a political context, while he traces discussions of the use of flattery and its problematic nature through a wide variety of political texts, authors, and time periods. The book begins by posing the question as to why flattery is a worrisome political phenomenon, while also asking the reader to consider Dan's basketball capacities, um, and concludes with a brief exploration of the contemporary political dynamic in the United States on the eve of the 2016 election. But between these bookends, Dan takes the reader through an extended exploration of works by Cicero, Adam Smith, Machiavelli the Federalists, and others, who indeed wrestle with the idea of flattery in the public sphere, while also within the context of political friendship and personal relations. But I will let Dan explain that more as we chat. First, though, I'd like to have Dan Kaputh tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Dan.
0: Good morning. Uh, Yes, so I'm Dan Kavist. I am a professor in the political science department at UW-Madison. And I've been here now for seven years. And prior to coming to UW, I was at the University of Georgia. Um, We'll talk more about this, I suppose, as the conversation goes on, but it's very quickly um, most of my research interests are in the history of political thought, really beginning with Roman antiquity, then the early modern period, and then into the 18th and somewhat into the 19th century. Uh, and then I've got sort of substantive or thematic interests in republicanism and rhetoric, uh, and uh, lately empire and democratic theory. Um, but so the question, I think, was how I got interested in flattery um, in the first place, right? Uh, and so, I mean, the two sort of things that I remember having kindled my interest were, um, both around the time of, uh, the 2008 election, uh, and one was an ad and I believe it was just an internet ad. Uh, it was called the one and it was a negative ad run against Obama and it featured Charlton Heston from the movie, the 10 commandments. Um, parting the Red Sea, and it was interspersed with images uh, and audio of Obama speaking. Uh, and I, I think it was supposed to be—I mean, I, I know it was supposed to be funny. I don't think it really was, but—and uh, I think it was supposed to be making fun of excitement about him, or or perhaps by emphasizing his rhetorical abilities above all to, to somehow indicate that he was all talk. Um, but at the time, and I was I was uh, working on my first book then, which was also on rhetoric, I remember thinking that it was sort of a bizarre attack. I mean, why wouldn't we want our our pop politicians to engage in, in speech and, you know, oratory and try to engage people and inspire people with their language? Um, and then the other one was a, a piece which came out, I think, right around then. It was on Cory Booker um, uh, and his... Development as a politician in in uh, New Jersey, I think in Camden originally. Um, Oh no, Newark, Newark. Uh, And uh, the sort of dilemma that he was depicted as facing when it came to speaking—that he he can't say whatever he thinks uh, because the realities of Democratic politics constrain him. So those were kind of the two sort of things that I think got me started thinking about it initially. But then as I think back more broadly, it also happened to be the case that as I was working on the first book um, and teaching um, a range of classes, mostly in ancient political thought at the University of Georgia, that I kept coming upon discussions of flattery um, in Plato's Gorgias and Plato's Phaedrus. It's all over Cicero. It's an Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Plutarch has an entire essay um, called How to Tell a Flatterer from a Friend. And it just struck me that this was an interesting theme. It then repeats itself in certain ways in the early modern period in the 18th century. Uh, and it looked to me like nobody had really written about this in a sustained way from at least a political theory perspective. So I thought to myself, you know, why not? I mean, when I, when I decided on um, that as a topic for the second book, uh, it was motivated in no small part by the desire to write something that was going to take me to people I didn't really know very much about. And I could learn about to periods. I didn't know as much about, but I could learn about. Um, and also I wanted the second book to be fun, (laughs) which the first book, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, I wrote it and, uh, I have, I have memories of writing it, um, but I, you know, I was much more instrumental, I think, with that one in terms of thinking about what to write on, and why to write on it. And I thought the second book, let's just write about something fun. And I, I thought, you know, when people ask me, what are you writing about? I can say flattery and then they'll laugh and they might actually be interested as opposed to uh, I'm writing about the rhetorical contours of Roman republicanism. So, so that was part of it, too.
1: Well, it's always good to have a fun project that you can discuss at cocktail parties. Certainly, certainly the case. Um, and
0: <laughs> that that was really the only reason.
1: <laughs> um, and, you know, I can see that there was there is a lot of um, not sort of much playfulness, but curiosity throughout the book um, and the way that you wove in so many different, different thinkers from different time periods. Um, and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about you lead the reader into this study about flattery through children's stories, um, which is both a fascinating entry point, I think, and an apt one, given the works you reference by Hans Christian Andersen and Aesop. Can you explain to us um, how these particular fables, um, and obviously The Emperor's New Clothes makes a lot of sense, um, bring us into your discussion of flattery? especially within our understanding of um, sort of broadly the history of political theory?
0: I mean, I know the reason why I chose them, and partly it was sort of rhetorical or strategic in terms of the composition of the text. Um, What I was trying to do, and I don't come out and say it, is to show that we've always been thinking about flattery in different ways. And in fact, uh, in some of these apparently innocuous stories, which we now call, you know, children's stories. Um, it's there. So the fox and the raven, and then um, the emperor's new clothing. So that was part of it. Uh, and then part of it too, again, I don't come out and state this per se, but part of it was to try to show that um, we inhabit a a tradition being I mean, broadly defined. I'm not right, hopefully rightifying the concept, of tradition but a tradition broadly defined in which we've always been telling stories like this. And we've always been thinking about and sort of um, depicting this to ourselves. And and so that was the other reason um, it's kind of strategically or in terms of composition, but why these two um, in particular, I, I mean, I wanted to incorporate more, non-philosophical texts, non-treatises, non-dialogues. Um, and as I sat down and thought about it and thought about the books that I read as a child, um, the, these were there, right? The Fox and the Raven. I, I can remember I had a book of Aesop's Fables um, with, I think, a red cover. I have no idea where it is. I mean, my parents have moved so many times. and I mean, I don't know what I did with it. Uh, and then, certainly, the, the emperor's new clothes, right? That um, the idea that somebody could be so vain uh, and, and thus so susceptible to manipulation and flattery that they can just do, do nonsensical things, and that the people on whom this individual is relying for counsel. Um, are so terrified, basically, of losing their position that they'll just go along with it. Um, so that, I mean, that's broadly why I did it. And, and so both from the perspective of kind of composition and then the broader sort of theoretical point I, I was hoping to make um, about the sort of tradition or traditions we already inhabit, Um, they both just struck me as very apt to do this. And then as I read and thought about them, it occurred to me that they're just describing very different things, right? Um, the fox and the fox and the raven, it's not as if the fox is in a permanent relationship of subordination whereby he is dominated by the arbitrary whims of the raven. The raven just has something the fox wants. And the fox is, is crafty and he's going to use the tools at hand to get it. And once he's got the, the meat, then there's no need for their relationship to continue. He can kind of go off and do his own thing and trick somebody else, right? Um, whereas the problem uh, with the Anderson story is it doesn't go away right? The problem is in part the personality of the King, but it also is just the fact that, that the power of a, of a monarch or really the power of any person with, with that much power, um, makes their subordinates on whom they're relying, right? For counsel, hopefully, and not just looking to them for, you know, praise and and (laughs) confirming what they already think. Um, this may come up later if we talk about the conclusion, uh, that that that's a real problem, and but both of those, again, as I had been thinking about framing the project and what what to write on and what to include, both of those struck me as picking up on some of the themes which I'd already encountered in classical thought, so you know Greek and Roman political thought
1: and That's what I wanted to to sort of ask you about next is you you do a wonderful job defining sort of the, the positioning of our understanding of flattery and the two, the two fables, as you just sketched out, sort of show the, the two main ways that you're talking about flattery. Can you explain to us how to think about these con- this concept and the way that you tease out our understandings of flattery?
0: Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I use, I generally will use the language moralistic right? To describe one, which is associated with Asop, And the other one, um, which is associated with Anderson, I'll sometimes call it strategic or I'll sometimes call it, um, you know, dependent. And, um, but really what captures that one is, is weapons of the week, right? Jim Scott's, um, uh, concept, well, I mean, he wrote a book with the title, but then it's a concept that travels across and, um, before I go on, I should just note that somebody who really helped crystallize my thinking on this is my colleague, um, who's now in Brazil, uh, Jimmy Claussen, because this was the literature and the sort of approach to political theorizing that he, he knew a lot more about. And he was um, immensely helpful to me. I remembered this quite vividly as he read my introduction. So, I mean, I really owe Jimmy a, a very special thanks. Um, but yeah, so it seems to me that there's sort of two ways of thinking about how we can understand flattery from a political and moral perspective or a political and ethical perspective. Um, The first, and it seems to me the dominant one, is what I call the moralistic. This is what we find in the Gorgias. This is what we find in Plato's Phaedrus. We find this in Plato's Republic. We find this in the can ethics we find it in the politics of Aristotle we find it in Cicero Plutarch and it's this idea that broadly speaking um, the flatterer has a particularly um, bad kind of character right uh, Plutarch uh, likens the flatterer to a chameleon but he's because he says like the chameleon he can imitate every color but white which strikes I, I don't think that's true I mean I've seen chameleons turn white at the zoo. So that can't be right. But I mean, it's a good metaphor. Um, and uh, and so it's this idea, this is somebody who um, sort of purposively engages in a kind of manipulative deception um, and targets uh, powerful people in particular. Um, and so it seems to me that you sort of see this when you look at well where do we think flattery is going to emerge and why if you look at the the broad array of ancient texts one answer is going to be tyranny and monarchy but it becomes tyranny in essence in part through flattery and the other is democracy right so um, why is it the case and we see this in cicero plato aristotle that we would expect there to be flattery in a monarchic regime or or a tyrannical regime, the sort of perversion of monarchy. Monarchs are really powerful and they've got stuff, right? And so Cicero in the Tusculan Disputations, he tells the story of the sword of Damocles. Um, uh, This is a story about uh, Dionysus and Damocles is one of his flatterers and he He makes this offhand remark that, man, I'd kind of like to be you, Dionysus. And he says, really? And he puts him in a chair with all the good things in the world in front of him that he could ever want. And he hangs the sword over his head with, you know, hung by the hair of a horse, right? Or a very fine string. Um, And that's what my life is like, says Dionysus. Now, that one's interesting because Dionysus knows what's going on, right? Often you get the Idea that someone who's flattered, this is, again, an antiquity in the moralistic perspective, someone who's flattered is so hoodwinked that they don't even know what's going on. Or, you you see, I mean, I don't talk much about Tacitus in this book, but Tacitus describes Janus, um, who's a sort of, he's an official, a general, kind of a courtier of the Emperor Tiberius, um, and he insinuates himself so effectively that Tiberius has no idea what's going on. Um, this is this is a, why I come back to the play Sejanus' Court, the Ben Johnson play in the Hobbes chapter. So anyway, that's one broad understanding of flattery. Um, and it's deeply moralistic in, in the sense of, of there's a, a, a very clear moral disapprobation attached to the person of the flatterer and the sort of character or characteristics that he or she embodies, right? Um, and then... As I had thought about that and was thinking about it and had read Anderson and started reading more Jim Scott and and looking at Invisible Man and some of these other sources, uh, it also struck me as very much incomplete, right? So um, the very term servility comes from the Latin term for a slave. And why is it slavish in a sort of pejorative sense to flatter? Well, one perspective, which I just outlined is because you're – You're the chameleon. You can't imitate white. But to me, it also seems just as plausible. And in fact, more plausible to say, well, what else are you going to do in a situation in which you are utterly dominated and you really don't have a lot of recourse? I mean, you do, but it's costly. It's risky, you know. So what in the course of your daily existence can you do to try to control or minimize the harmful effects of arbitrary power? One answer is flattery, right? And so this is this old archetype. Like, I don't talk about Plautus, the Roman playwright, but you see it in him. Um, this comes up in the Republican scholarship on, on why we would flatter those with dominating power, right? Um, and that, to me, is also quite intuitive. And in fact, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to somebody in that situation. What choice did they have, right? Um, and then as I started reading more Jim Scott and, and uh, about ancient slavery and so forth, this is a weapon of the week. Um, and it's not just that it can help to sort of minimize or mitigate the effects of arbitrary power. It it can actually be a fairly within constraints, a fairly effective way of exercising one's own agency. Right. Um, and and so those are the sort of two broad contours that I that I came to or that I that I've sort of had in mind as I wrote the book.
1: And and I think that the the secondary or the second the um, de- definition that you present to us is one that we most most of us use on a daily basis, or we encounter it, um, and and we are participatory in it in a lot of ways that we may not be in the first definitional sort of construction. Um, and I think that that you know any anybody who's in a job usually finds themselves um, in some capacity thinking about or even unconsciously sort of participating in it um which which is again sort of you know why why understanding flattery is also important because we do participate in it and so you you sort of you laid out again um, with reference to a lot of the um, sort of classical texts um, where flattery has been explored. Um, but you also acknowledge in the book that you are paying a little bit more attention to where it comes up. Um, In classical Roman texts, in part because it is uh, an area where you are particularly an expert, but also because many have already paid attention to the way that the Greek, classical Greek texts encountered and talked about um, flattery. Can you take us through like the first two chapters a little bit um, with regard to the classical Roman texts that you explore in particular?
0: Yeah, so I mean, uh, this first, I mean, the, you know, why not Greece, right? Um, and I, I talk a little bit about Greece, but. Um, you do. <laughs> uh, I mean, not that you say that. I, I always feel a little uh, like I need to justify, although increasingly less the case, I need to justify my interest in Rome rather than Greece. Um, uh, but uh, I, I do think that uh, it's the case, and I don't mean to be flattered when I say this, that. Um, much of the scholarship that you found or find in political theory and or philosophy on flattery um, in antiquity, it is Greek. It's on the Greeks. So I think of Arlene Saxon House's work. I think of um, Sarah Modison's written a bit about this. Christina Tarnopoulos' book um, is great. And then Liz Markovitz's book is, is a great book, too. And so they, I kind of saw myself as, as building on them in a way. But what i found appealing about rome in addition to the fact that these very smart people who i've just named hadn't written on it yet uh is that there's a certain the republicanism of it made it very appealing right um rome is uh they they're not a democracy Um, I mean, I don't take quite such a firm stance in the book. I acknowledge that there's a debate. I don't really think, though, to be fair, that that there's that much of a debate anymore. I mean, Fergus Millar had made the case quite strongly in the late 90s, early 2000s, that Rome was a democracy. And the pendulum kind of pushed back in other ways. Um, It's contestatory, right? There's participation of a sort. But the word democracy, it's not as if the Romans don't know the word. Right. They explicitly don't call themselves that. And Cicero in particular doesn't call Rome that because he identifies that with a non-mixed regime and he identifies it as being dangerous for a range of reasons. Um, So, you know, so that's part of the reason why I'm I'm interested in Rome, um, because uh, it captures... I mean, it's the sort of source material from one of the big contemporary themes in which I do see concerns of flattery either playing out or being relevant, and that's republicanism. Um, the other reason why, though, as I started working on it um, has to do with just the nature of the kind of the, the puzzle I, I try to hone in on, which is how do you go in really the space of about 150 years from a society in which um, the, the sort of popular depiction is that they they hate monarchy, right? And um, you know Julius Caesar, uh, uh, he he his clemency is this deeply problematic quality. It's you know Cicero refers to in one of his letters as um, clementia insidiosa, so insidious clemency. How do you get from that to? The world of about 100 CE Rome, which is Pliny writing this uh, sort of over the top speech of thanks to the emperor Trajan, and I'm someone who tends to think that uh, very rarely do uh, things change very rapidly in terms of intellectual you know processes and, and clusters of ideas. That there's usually long processes, and sometimes they can happen in unforeseen ways. And that, that's kind of that chapter. Um, but the other reason why Rome plays such a big part in the book is the Roman, uh, rhetorical tradition, right? Uh, as in how it was sort of created as or understood as a tradition after the period, not that they themselves would have said, Oh, we are a tradition in this sense. Um, but Cicero Quintilian in particular, um, Roman thinking about and writing about rhetoric shaped uh, especially early modern thinkers and really into the 18th century, well into the 18th century. I mean, the, the, the people that I'm, I'm writing about are, are people who know Latin and not Greek, or they know Latin far better than they know Greek. These Latin rhetorical texts are going to be key parts of their curriculum. Um, And so it, it, it sort of shapes their thinking. And then that, that lens makes it for me as a scholar, both more intuitive when I approach these later texts, but also uh, makes them more familiar. Right. I would say. Um, So that's a, a, a bit about, you know, why, why Rome and in America we, you know, I don't believe too much in the sort of pedantic distinction. that people sometimes say, "Oh, America is a republic, not a democracy." I think that's a very sort of silly thing to say. Um,
1: Welcome to one that, of intro yeah, to American politics. Yeah,
0: <laughs> having said that, I think that's a silly thing to say. America is a republic and not a democracy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but no, the fact that. Uh, the term republic is one that we will often use, right, to describe our own polity and democracy too. Um, that also made it to me very, very interesting to sort of think about it, the, the Roman terms rather than the Greek terms.
1: And and so you do go from the Romans, then you move into you know sort of the the early in, Enlightenment period, and you you pay particular attention to um, Machiavelli's work where he does talk about flattery um and and others and and then you sort of move into Hobbes as well before before we get into you know some of the the even later contemporary not contemporary but later thinkers. Can you talk a little bit because part of what I found interesting in the book is you sort of position um some of these thinkers in interesting encounters um in in terms of their discussion of the role of flattery, the place of flattery in politics, um, and concerns about a, a, about flattery. Um, and and they're not necessarily encounters that we're always used to within the history of political thought. Um, so if you can talk a little bit about, you know, sort of trading the rest of the, the outline of the book um, and, and these interesting encounters of thinkers that you have sort of positioned.
0: I, I, I knew going in um, that I wanted to write about Machiavelli, let's say, um, just because of the chapters in The Prince about flattery. And so and then you look and he he does talk about flattery. He doesn't talk about it directly as much as, as you might think. Um, but as I started uh, teaching, I mean, a lot of this was driven by my teachings. I started teaching more of uh, sort of early modern or, or, you know, um, 15th, 16th century Italian thought. The one who does is Castiglione. And um, the book of the courtier, uh, it seemed to me as I read it and taught it and reread and retaught it, that it really has this sort of interesting relationship to the prince. I mean, they're written about the same time. They're written about similar or within similar circumstances, about similar phenomena. And they seem to take very different stances um, on flattery and what it's good for and what it's not good for and so forth, despite this, this kind of similarity, right? So um, in that case, and really, I think all of them, uh, these encounters that interest me are encounters... Um, that if I were doing comparative politics, I might style as something like a most similar comparison, right? Um, So we have thinkers in a particular moment facing a a particular set or set of related phenomena or a particular phenomenon and encountering it uh, in different ways. And then I sort of bring them together in an encounter. Um, So that's, that's Castiglione and Machiavelli. Uh, And, then within that, um, each of the um, the chapters centers on a, a sort of different dimension of flattery um, that connects to a particular set of of worries that I think are resonant in, in particular moments. So the chapter on Rome, it's really about status, right? Romans are very status conscious, at least elite Romans are certainly, and I I suspect that non-elite Romans are too. Um, The sheer fact that Roman citizenship was often opposed to slavery, right? Indicates that it's a very status-laden notion. Um, To be free is not to be a slave. Um, Whereas Castiglione and and Machiavelli, um, it seemed to me a lot more about style, Right. In the sense that uh, Castellione is really writing about how, I mean, to put it, well, I'm not really exaggerating. How do you make the prince fall in love with you? Right. Um, How do you make yourself so appealing um, and be seemingly effortless in doing so that uh, you are in the position by the time you come to book four of the courtier? Now, you can tell the prince what, or uh, or I mean, to be fair to Castellan, we have elite women in the book too, right? Um, the prince or whatever sort of uh, regal authority you're encountering. Um, how can you tell that person what they need to hear, but what they probably don't want to hear and what nobody else is probably going to tell them? Um, because they're going to get angry at you and you make them fall in love with you. Right? That's, that's it. You're so good at every single thing you do. You're effortless in doing so. You're this deeply attractive figure. Um, and as a result, you're, you're trying to um, give them advice. Whereas my, you know, Machiavelli would say, well, that's, that's precisely the kind of speech and behavior um, that you should distrust, right? And there, the, the link that really made this clear was that Machiavelli in the dedicatory letter to the prince, the famous one to Lorenzo, uh he explicitly, of, he states that he will explicitly avoid using a range of rhetorical tactics, mostly involving the term ornament, um, that are central to Castiglione. So, that, I mean, that's one. The Hobbes, there was, as I started reading more 17th century and late 16th century English literature, um, what you find is that people are thinking about flattery a lot. I mean partially this comes out of the mirror genre right? blackybelly, whether you call it participating in or subverting it's certainly the the prince is mirror like at a minimum um, and so when we read james the i's political writings he 's thinking about flattery uh, when we read the writings of uh the most radical critics of monarchy. I mean, to the point where they just want to get rid of it altogether whether it's, you know, um, Milton or Sydney, uh, they're also thinking about flattery. And, and James, the first is, um, uh, it's less direct, I suppose with him, I guess people debate this about both Sajanis, the, the Johnson play and, and Lear, you know, Shakespeare's King Lear. Um, certainly by the end, the Duke of Buckingham is perceived of as being sort of the archetypical courtier, right? The the worrisome courtier. And then Charles I um, is sometimes depicted as having been seduced by bad counselors or or seduced by figures at court to make bad decisions. So this language of flattery and, and seduction and court and the corruptions of court it seemed to me very current in uh, the period, right? Very common, I should say. And putting Hobbes in conversation with these other, especially English sources, uh, to me highlights the distinctiveness. And I mean, it's very Hobbesian. I mean, Hobbes has these very odd arguments he makes about all sorts of things in which you can, you know... But I mean, his religion arguments, virtually everything he says in part three or four, parts three and four of Leviathan are things that somebody somewhere said in writing in 17th century England. He just combines them all in this crazy thing. Um, But his defense of monarchy, given these worries about flattery, given these worries about manipulation and rhetoric. it struck me as this kind of typically ingenious, and probably wrong, but ingenious defense that Hobbes has of monarchy. And and so whereas someone like Milton or Sidney, you see this in Lear, right? Is, is Lear simply aged, um, or is it his character that's the problem? Um, but that there's the feelings and, and sentiments of Lear, the person, are at odds with the duties that he has to carry out as Lear the king. Um, this is there in Sejanus, his fall by Johnson. And Hobbes basically says, well, actually, the good thing about monarchy is that it's just one person, right? So that the natural person of the king, you're a natural person, I'm a natural person, I would say, um, is identical to the artificial person of the sovereign. And that is never the case in any other system. And because of that, actually, monarchy is your best bet. And there's a logic to it. And I, I mean, you know, I suppose it makes sense. I think it's wrong. Um, but that, that sort of comparison is what interested me. Um, same with uh, Mandeville and Smith. I mean, you know. We know that Smith read Mandeville. He writes about him in that letter to the uh, what the Edinburgh Journal right? or the Edinburgh Review rather. Very short lived, <laughs> and uh, he alludes to him all over the Theory of Moral Sentiments. He references him it directly. It's always seemed to me that the very first sentences of the Theory of Moral Sentiments are a response to um, uh, Mandeville's essay, The Enquiry into the Arts of Moral Virtue, um, and. And he holds Mandeville out for special scorn and theory of moral sentiments. And there was just trying to think about why. Again, here we have Mandeville writing, you know, late well, early 18th century, seemingly valorizing this emergent commercial power that is England or the United Kingdom. Um, and people have critiqued that, like Brandon Turner at Clemson. Um, who he may listen to this. What's up, Brandon? Um, but Brandon Turner at Clemson has critiqued this kind of reading of, of Mandeville. Um, and I think rightly. Uh, but then Smith, writing at the end of the 18th century, is often depicted as, and I think very much incorrectly, simply celebrating right commercial society. I mean, m- much recent Smith scholarship has shown that he is not, it's far from a sort of uncritical celebration, right? You think of, of Ryan Hanley's work or, um, Griswold's work or Phillipson's book, or my colleague, Michelle Schwarzy's work. I mean, that's just not Smith, but again, similar in various ways, right? They're both writing in English. They're both writing in and about commercial society in various ways. And then they just come to very different conclusions. Um, Federalist, Anti Federalist, that's the, the last substantive chapter. Um, there initially, I mean, so as I taught the Federalist Papers and started teaching the Anti Federalist Papers, um, you notice very quickly Federalist One, I, I mean, the language of obsequious court that's there in Federalist One. There's an argument um, that has been made, especially by, uh, blanking on Jeffrey Tullis, the Rhetorical Presidency. That, that the Constitution is a sort of anti-demagogic machine, right? That's what it's set up for. And Jim Caesar kind of argues this as well. Um, and and then as you start sort of digging into it, you see that the they just call each other flatterers all the time. I mean, not all the time. They call each other all kinds of things. But both the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists call each other flatterers. They both will use language of seduction or coloration or these, these terms that come out of the rhetorical tradition to describe each other. Um, and so initially, the chapter had was a, was a sort of sustained comparison of all the ways they insult each other, revolving around the language of flattery. And then as I just read a little more, what, what really started to intrigue me was the sense that you find in some of the anti-federalists. And there's so many federalists, anti-federalists. I mean, I don't like to call them the anti-federalists for that reason. Um, but what you see is this sense that the federalists are really trying to hoodwink people, right? That they're they it's a bait and switch. Um, they offer they, they they appeal to this sense of resentment or or humiliation um, at the hands of Europe. And they promised them self-respect and empire, right? But in return, they're just going to ask you for your liberty, right? And and uh, and that was kind of where that, that took me. And I mean, that that was really sharp. And when I read Sheldon Wolin's essay, Tending and Intending, which is in a, a volume on the bicentennial of the Constitution. Um, but again, that was one in which I, I sort of found myself not going full anti-federalist, because as, as one of my, a friend of mine who's a historian at the University of Kentucky said, you you have to tend the thing you intend, and then you intend tending. I mean, she thought it was sort of a ridiculous uh, you know, dichotomy. And I think she's right. Um, but I, I think the danger is certainly there, and why they found it a danger is worth sort of revisiting. And that, I mean, well, this will probably go to the last chapter, but one of my colleagues, um, when he read that chapter, he has a sort of side interest in American political thought. He said that Hamilton <laughs> is just trying to make America great again. Right. And I thought, Oh my God, Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> what, what have I done? Uh, and, um, but, but, you know, well we will talk about that last chapter, but that's when I sort of realized, and this was when he, he was going to be the nominees before he won, um, you Know, I wrestled with after he won. Should I just rewrite the whole book? <laughs> and uh, and I said, Oh man, I'll you just know, never finish stop
1: at some point, never finish. Um,
0: um yeah, and I, I mean, I I, I I, try to justify why I did that, you know, and because yeah. as I was doing copy edits, he won. Uh, when I was writing the last chapter to send it out, he was, uh, um, you know, he was not likely to win, according to Five Thirty Eight.
1: Well, there there was the discussion of of probability at Five Thirty Eight, also with regard to their projections. Um, but in terms of you know, sort of what starts to come up as, as well in the more contemporary works that you're looking at in the Federalists and the Anti Federalists is also this question of demagoguery and how that connects with the sort of political concept of flattery. Um, and and can you talk a little bit about that particularly as you you know you sort of moved into that the last the concluding chapter which is about the 2016 election um, and suddenly the word demagogue was you know in our vocabulary again, not just those of us who've read the Federalist papers on occasion um, and and sort of how how does that fit into the analysis of flattery Yeah
0: so, I mean, that's one I, I really wrestled with. I mean, the, the question I found myself asking, uh, I mean, again, at that moment, right, this isn't, this isn't written now in which flattery's connection to the, the Trump administration is really these weird competitive public um, abasements that his uh, collective abasements performed by his cabinet officials, which are just weird, right in all sorts of ways yes,
1: yeah. um, and then they're made yeah and they're public exactly they're
0: on and they're of it. course right uh they you know i mean my own understanding of flattery is such that i'm, I'm always hesitant to say that x is flattery because you never really know the person's motives um and uh in some instances what seems to be flattery may be a response to a particular dilemma in which that person finds themselves the fact that it's done in public i think is striking Um, This is something which, regardless of which group of, you know, broad ideological camp um, of writers you're reading in the late 18th century in America, I think they would all find very concerning. Um, uh, But but yeah, so demagoguery. And flattery. I mean, the demagogues will occasionally engage in flattery, right? But it's not as if, right. um, or what seems to be flattery. But it's not as if one must flatter to be a demagogue, and not all flatterers are demagogues, right? Um, some of them are 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 the people who Cicero describes, they or well, really Plutus, I would say, describes. They show up at your house when you have a dinner party. Um, they eat all the food. And then Plautus would say when they leave, they steal the napkins. Right. Um, <laughs> this is what they do. Um, and they show up again. Um, whereas demagoguery, I mean, I've been quite attracted to this sort of functional or non-ethical definition of Patricia Roberts, Patricia Roberts Miller. Yeah. Um, which is to look at what a demagogue does rather than whether or not he or she is sincere because they can be quite sincere in their demagoguery. They may really believe what they say. Um, So Trump during the campaign, he did on occasion engage in what I would describe of as something, as whether he means it or not, right? It's recognizably akin to, or it's a recognizable instance of what we would call flattery. Like when he says, um, I forget after which primary, but we love the uneducated voters, right? Um, Maybe he does. I mean, I have no idea what he loves or doesn't love. Um, But, you know, yeah. And and steaks cooked well, which, uh, you know, is is terrible. Um, No, but uh, he may like that. But that to me, it's politicians do that, you know. Um, I, I write about this and you live in Wisconsin, so you understand why I'm skeptical of this. You've been to Iowa. I mean, come on, come on, right? This isn't it. it's fine. It's, it's, if you know, it's, it's fine. But every time they have the caucus, you get these pay to Iowa. And we all know that Wisconsin's vastly better than Iowa. I mean, this isn't. Some, this isn't.
1: A, <laughs> oh gosh, we're going to lose no. all kinds of listeners in Iowa.
0: now. <laughs> no, but of course, you know, if, if this were in writing, I'd have a little smiley face emoji. But no, I mean, Iowa's lovely. I've got a close friend of you. I love going there. But I mean, this is just what politicians do, right? They flatter. And, of yeah, Mandeville says the more general the flattery is, the, the sort of harder it is to sort of pinpoint. Right. And we, we expect that. So that didn't really worry me. Um, where I think you really do see flattery um, coming up is is more in the public behavior of very, very powerful people. Um, engaging in this sort of obsequious display in public. Now, why might you do that? The really worrisome answer, it seems to me, is uh, because th- again, we don't know. I think we won't know till they write their tell-all book, and even then, people always will, you know, manipulate and conceal. But the worrisome answer is they feel constrained to do so, right? That either right. that. The presidency qua office is so powerful that the subordinates of the president feel themselves constrained to flatter because of uh, of power asymmetries. Or even more worrying is that, leaving that aside, they feel constrained to do so in his case. Now, I didn't again, I didn't want to write about well. Actually, he hadn't won yet, so I hadn't even thought of it. But um, I'm reluctant to to just simply say. It's that Trump is this, you know, aberrant figure, utterly different, you know, utterly separate from the the entirety of the American political truth. I mean, but people will do. Um, I can't get in the head of, you know, Steve Mnuchin or or Mike Pence, and why are you doing this? But I I do find it worrisome. I, I'm I'm it may be the case that I have sort of rosy colored glasses in my own political predilections. Make me think of Obama in a better light than he actually existed, and, and again, that's part of the reason why I'm reluctant to really go too far in this. Um, but I don't remember, and and maybe I'm just wrong. I don't remember public cabinet meetings starting out with the 20-minute "Who loves me more" competition. What that does remind me of is King Lear, uh, and I right, Particularly yeah, I don't Act like one, that. Yes. That's bad news. But I mean what better way of the flip side to show your loyalty and to show your trustworthiness than to humiliate yourself in public. Right. I mean, really, well, this guy right. must really want to work for me if he's willing to do this in public. So bring it on. And then you can't opt out in that situation either. Right. You can't be the one guy who says, eh, you're okay. <laughs> you're fine. I re-
1: yeah. And we know what happened yeah. to Cordelia. Yeah. I mean, awesome. um, <laughs>
0: So, but yeah, yeah, I mean, demagoguery, to me, the the, the archetype um, in antiquity, I mean, there's many, but the one that you can really think of is uh, De- uh, um, Cleon in, in Thucydides, his speech with Diodotus, uh, yeah. their debate rather, with Diodotus, which is sort of retold by Salus and with Catiline. And there's something flattering, I suppose, about his anti-intellectualism if one perceives oneself to have been... Spoken down to, or or shown contempt by intellectuals, right? That's basically Cleon says, you know, don't listen to these these pointy eggheads, you know, telling you what to do. Anger, yeah, right. And and people have written about the trope of resentment. My one of my colleagues uh, has got a fantastic book on this. Um, and one of the narratives one heard after the election which I sure, I mean, it, it seems to be borne out, at least with interviews and stuff, who knows how true this is, um, is that part of what Trump tapped into, which is what populists will often, but not always tap into, is a sort of anti-elitism. Um, and right. and there is something, I think, pleasing about that. I don't want to necessarily say it's flattering, It it can be flattering. Does he mean it? Does he not mean it? Is he causing people to do what they would otherwise not do? Um, Perhaps. But there is something appealing about that kind of anti-elitism. And uh, what makes me pause, though, is that uh, it it seems to me that Bernie Sanders is anti-elitism, right? Because he's a sort of populist, too. Um, His What I what appeals to me more about his is that he punches up
1: as opposed to punching down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if it's the case that um, the voiceless masses have been victimized by unaccountable elites and structures of power, it's more intuitive to me that one should punch upward at those elites rather than downward at those who are marginalized. But uh, that, that to me is the demagogic impulse.
1: Well, I mean, it's also part of what Trump was arguing, and when he was campaigning at least, was about draining the swamp, which is a form of punching up. Um, but his administration perhaps has not has not quite fulfilled the drain the swamp aspect of the campaign promise. Um, and I think that's part of what we've been seeing, particularly of late, with regard to um, people buying first class and, and very expensive dining room <laughs> sets and and so forth.
0: Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah. no, you're right. And to be fair, I mean, the, the, the drain, the swamp was, it, it was, that was very anti-establishment. I think that was the idea of it. Um, it's just, for me that that coexisted with, um, the opening salvo against this, um, imagine army of, of Mexicans, immigrants who are going to commit sexual assault. Right. Uh, and, um, that's, so that's the, that's what I meant by, you know, punching down, but you're right. The other thing that came out in the campaign is, uh, the portrayal of himself as beholden to none, that he, he is structurally not susceptible to manipulation because of his resources and that also ties into the the trope of he says what he thinks, right? Um, which is another kind of independence.
1: Yes, and and again, it sort of is a is an interesting comparative with regard to the question of flattery that that he is a frank speaker because he is in fact not flattering. He is not trying to ingratiate himself with political elites or those who are politically correct as he sort of indicted the terminology during the campaign. Um, but I wanted to ask you another question that's not as much the center of the book, but kind of, I want to kind of dances on the edges. Um, and that's this sort of role with regard to flattery as you discuss it, um, and friendship, as it sort of is woven somewhat through some of the the texts and thinkers that you that you sort of posit within the book itself, that that there is, you know, sort of a, a tension possibly. Um, and and all of these thinkers also have often something to say about friendship and political friendship in particular. Um, can you speak to that a little bit?
0: Yeah, um So the flatterer um, can be opposed to and often is opposed to the friend, right? Um, And uh, Cicero in his dialogue on friendship often does juxtapose the flatterer to the friend uh, in part because the way that one speaks as a friend is opposed to or opposite of how one speaks as a flatterer but also why one speaks in the first place and why one associates in the first place are very different, right? So uh, I think it's Aristotle who has the idea that the, the friend is like a second self, you know, or an other self. And there is something of that in Cicero, that the, the firmest foundation of friendship for him, the truest friendship, and you're not going to have many people like this in your life, is this sort of mutual recognition an admiration of, of excellence. Um, now, the flatterer, by contrast, is somebody who uh, see, either seeks out someone to get stuff from and, and sort of feigns friendship, is a false friend, pretends to be a friend in order to get it. Um, or, I mean, you see some of this in Aristotle. The flatterer is just somebody who's sort of just too friendly, too friendly in a bad way right? Um, And they're kind of, it's icky, right? Um, And so that, I mean, that's there. But the other thing that I think struck me is just very interesting, personally, at least as I read it, was it's a a very recognizable impulse, right? Um, There there, uh, was, I think it was a Starburst or, yeah, it was a Starburst commercial. This is how I think in terms of commercials and and children's books. Um, No, no, it was Kit Kat. It was a Kit Kat one, uh, in which uh, a teenage boy uh, was going to pick up his date, if I recall correctly, at, at her house, and um, he, he just happened to have a Kit Kat in his hands. And she came down the steps in her dress, and it's very, you know, typically it's advertising, so it's, it's sexist, of course. And um, uh, and she comes down, and she doesn't look great, and uh, to him at least, and so how. And I think the language was need a moment. And so he shuts the Kit Kat in his mouth to think of something to say. Right. (laughs) And, um, and, uh, but that kind of captures something, I think, I mean, more broadly about the dilemma of friendship is that when your friend is about to do something you disagree with, or has done something you disagree with, or you want to advise him or her to do something, you, you face a real dilemma. Um, even your closest friends, excessive frankness, right, or rather, I would say tactlessness, comes with a real cost, and you're you're faced with the desire to, on the one hand preserve the relationship, on the other hand, help your friend, um, on the other hand, you know, be true to your own principles in this instance, and it's just not easy to do, right um, uh, you You alluded earlier, I think, to the sort of dilemma we find ourselves in in just the professional world. Right. Um, I mean, if you're an academic, right, you start out as an assistant professor, if you're lucky, you know, I mean, if you're that, if that's your starting job, you're quite fortunate, right? Many of us start out in visiting positions or postdocs, which are perfectly, it's not as if this is undesirable. These are great things to get, you know, um but you're you're reminded, I think, of the precariousness of your situation very frequently, right? Uh, I remember the the sheer terror i I lived in at the University of Georgia. and this is not an indictment of my colleagues who were perfectly lovely people because none of them were from Iowa, right? No they were no I'm turning again close I love Iowa right? it's just it's just there. Yeah. You're really it's, working it's, on a yeah, thing yeah. over it's Iowa. It's just there, and, and I'm from Wisconsin. It's the narcissism of, of <laughs> small differences, right? Um, but uh, they were lovely people, but it was this sort of what Adam Smith calls the awful futurity. Of, you know, he's talking about death, but to me it was the awful futurity if the vote doesn't go as I think. So does that mean that I flattered them? No, but it does mean that I wanted very much to be on friendly relations with them. Does that mean that my friendly relations with them were, were artificial or contrived or, or, in, you know, not genuine? The answer I think is no, but it's, it's a dilemma in which we, we find ourselves. Right. Uh, and, and that was something that some of the, some of the writers are very attuned to. Um, and some are not. Uh, the, the, these overtly deeply moralistic accounts. I mean, they're very unsympathetic to that. Um, whereas uh, in their own ways, Machiavelli and Castiglione really recognize the dilemmas you find yourself in setting aside power asymmetries, um, but just existing as we do in, in networks of these deep affective um, bonds and you're balancing so many things, right. in your interactions Um I think Adam Smith gets that very well, too. And, and that was something that I, I just found myself really being struck by as I wrote this and thought about my own existence, right? And the other thing was well, I mean, you know, I talk about my kid a little bit in the book, but it, it, kids are honest, right? I mean, <laughs> they say what they think. Um, and and I, it, it's funny to me how much of my life. And my interaction with my son is—he's become increasingly—he's very verbal. Talks all the time, um, you know. Teaching him to be polite, which you know Rousseau would say is to be a liar, right? To be disingenuous and, and this corrupt, this corrupt member of society, you know, uh, and. Sure, fine, there's a truth to that, that I am teaching to conceal, but there's a reason why, right? Again, um, uh, we live in this, this web of, of, of affect, and just saying whatever you think, whenever you think it, um, however you want to, strikes me as a very, um, in a, not just inappropriate, but, but worrisome behavior.
1: Well, it's, it's, it also, you know, it doesn't necessarily think about the context, right? In which we all, as you say, I mean, it's an affective web in which we live, but it's also the, you know, we have, we have relationships with people, (laughs) um, and there, there are many dimensions, (laughs) um, and, and again, you know, I, and you do say this a lot throughout the book, which I thought, you know, helped me to think about flattery in context was the idea of this power asymmetry. Um, And so many times and places and ways um, that, you know, it's not just you, it's your family, right? Um, It's not just you, it's your colleagues. Um, It's your students, if we're academics, or, you know, who's in the workplace with you. Um, That all of those have these asymmetries that may contribute to how we think about what we need to say in a situation or what we may need to do in a situation. Um, that I thought you're, you know, you're sort of, you're tracing this thinking about flattery through many thinkers who try to sort of consider all of those aspects um, that I thought the book was, was really fascinating. And, um, and of course you know given our current political dynamic here and elsewhere you know mr putin having recently won his reelection um again sort of what does what do, what do global politics how do we understand them in this context as well um but i also wanted to ask you um in terms of having completed this book, which you said you wanted to do because it sounded to be like it might be a lot more fun than the first book. Um, what, what, what are you doing now? <laughs> uh,
0: so uh, I'm working, or I've begun working on two new projects, um, both of which involve Rome, again, in, in various ways, one of which also... It involves rhetoric, uh, as does this and as does my first book. So the one, one of them, it's a book that'll be really, mo- I suppose, arguably kind of a book about reception. Um, but, uh, it's tentatively titled the Lucretian moment, um, or, or and the subtitle is, uh, Lucretius and the politics of early modernity. And there I'm, I've started writing it and I'm hoping I'll finish it. We'll see, um, Is a book on a set of early modern thinkers who we know read Lucretius and um, is kind of going from there. So then knowing they read Lucretius, knowing that each of them is for various ways or in various ways, interesting, um, sometimes shocking, right? One of them is Machiavelli. I don't find him particularly shocking, but I, I know people who do. Um, what do we make of this relationship? Uh, what does it mean? What does it not mean? And uh, what I'm interested in there is to show that the, the relationship between an author and his or her source it's, it's never simple. It's never just adoption. It's never just critique. It's, it's nuanced. It's contextual. It's, it's attentive to all sorts of circumstance. Um, and that these thinkers, so the ones that I'm, I would like to include, and there's drafts of, of really two and a half or I suppose three of the chapters. Um, the things I'd like to include are Machiavelli, Montaigne, uh, Hobbes, Mandeville, Rousseau, and then perhaps Pierre Gassendi. Um, but that, that, yeah, that's the idea with each of them. We, we know that they read Lucretius, some quite extensively. Um, you know, I think Montaigne had a copy of the poem that he annotated. Uh, Machiavelli copied the poem, and it's in his own hand. Uh, and then sort of knowing that, so what, Right. Um, uh, uh, David Norbrook um, he's at uh, I think Oxford in the English department there uh, has an edited volume that he writes the introduction to on, on Lucretius and early modern thought or Lucretius and the early modern in which he talks a bit about um, the way in which Machiavelli's knowledge of Lucretius um, has and has not uh, affected the way that political theorists read him. And, and for some political theorists, this is the smoking gun. I, kn- I oh. knew, I knew he, he <laughs> turned his back on antiquity, this modern, lower of sightseeing kind of thing. And, um, and some will say, yeah, he read Lucretius. That's why he's so great, you know. Um, but uh, Norbrook's point is Machiavelli shocks you no matter who you think he's read right now. And I I mean, he's a playful writer and I think he can certainly be shocking. I can, I don't find him myself terribly shocking, but I I read a lot of science fiction. (laughs) Um, uh, But I mean, so that would be, that's one of the projects. The other one I've that this one really came out of um, what I, I found myself thinking about in finishing the flattery book and writing the American political thought chapter. Um, uh, the tentative title is the tragedy of an Imperial Republic. And what I'm interested in there is, uh, the fact that many of history's great republics, and in fact, the republics that have been central to the so-called Republican revival were Imperial powers. Um, And the ones I have in mind that I'm going to hope to write on are Florence, uh, Rome, um, which is sort of the Ur text, right? Um, uh, the Dutch Republic, the English Commonwealth, and then late 18th century America, and then maybe the French Republic, the first French Republic, um, They've been empires and, and you look in the 18th century and there are plenty of people who think that empire and Republic are antithetical. Um, So what do we make of this? And what I'm interested in um, is the ways in which these Republics tell stories about themselves, narratives about peoplehood, right? Uh, Roger Smith has the book stories of people, but I think that's the title. Um, And, They tell stories about themselves that legitimize self-rule and not being ruled by others. And the linchpin of these stories are their possession of qualities, virtues at the individual and collective level that allow them to be free. And these very qualities also often make them quite successful in warfare And the qualities or the the, the things behind the qualities, the ideals that that are sort of developed and embedded within, or developed by these virtues and embedded within the political system, these wind up being the very things that allow a republic to go forth and deprive another people of the good of self-rule. So the tragedy, as as I'm thinking about it, and I haven't gone too far with this, is that the very thing which enables them to be a people, which enables them to be free, which enables them to go forth and conquer, is undermined by its success. Right. Um
1: So that this this sounds like a really substantial Yeah that's story. the problem. They're both really big wow.
0: projects. So um yeah this one uh I'll start with Rome because it's what I know best, I suppose. Um but it is uh uh The the chapter on English thought, I think it'll be mostly about Milton, so I can sort of narrow it down that way. The chapter on 18th century America, I I don't particularly want to write about um, sort of overt political text. I want to write about novels and plays and poetry. Um, So I'm reading right now Mercy Warren, uh, uh, Otis Warren's uh, Massive History of the, the Revolution, Um, and she wrote some, some plays as well. I think I'm going to read a bunch of her work. Um, and, uh, the Dutch Republic, that's the one I'm really going into. And I'm going to just do a lot of learning and reading. I bought the, the massive, um, Oxford. I think it is a volume, the history of the Dutch Republic. It's rise and fall. that's the topic, it's not the title. And it's, you know, 900 pages and I'm a third of the way through and, (laughs) <laughs> I've, I've uh, You know, and I've got <laughs> in my notes about 10 things that I think I now need to read. And I'm just going to kind of go in that. Direction. You know, uh, uh, Skinner <laughs> and Van Galderen have written or edited, there is a lot written on Dutch thought, but it's just totally new to me. Um, so you're right. It's a big, it's a big project, um, as is the Lucretius project. But um, I thought, uh, I mean, my thinking going to flattery was that this will be fun. And I thinking going into these two is it'll keep me busy. <laughs> um, but then, I, you yes. know, again, I'll get to learn I I'll- <laughs> in the process. I'll, I mean, I'll learn about things I don't know much about. And hopefully this will then have a, a, a beneficial effect on my teaching. And, yeah. you know, it'll give me something to do for the next 10 years.
1: So when you finish these projects, will you come back on the New Books Network and talk to us about your new books?
0: Um, if we're all still here in 10 years, no, I'm kidding. Uh, yes, I will. I will come back in the 10 years or however long (laughs) it'll take. Hopefully it won't be that long. Um, and I will come back, uh, and I promise I will not make any Iowa jokes
1: at that time. All right. right. (laughs) Um, so, so where can somebody get a hold of flattery and the history of political thought beyond beyond our usual you know it's the defaults
0: <laughs> our usual suspects so um, it is available at Cambridge University Press's website uh, and um, I had a discount code I do not have it you know to, to share right? so I had an audience but if one were interested one could email me and I could provide that. But also uh, in Madison itself, there's a great uh, independent bookshop called A Room of One's Own, um, after the title of the wonderful book by Virginia Woolf. And uh, one can, in fact, find the book there as well. Um, So all the usual suspects, but, you you know, every town, I I hope, is going to have the nice independent bookshop um, like A Room of One's Own where you can go and, and also pick it up.
1: Well, thank you for being with me today, Dan Kapust, and thank you for (laughs) talking to us about Flattery and the History of Political Thought, that glib and oily art, um, which is published by Cambridge University Press.
0: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.